Tonight's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyra, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyra and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manesson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Good evening. My name is Graham, and I've been a part of this church on and off for a while. Uh, the off bit was in other exotic, strange places like the Middle East and Queensland, things like that. Uh, the on bit began ages and ages ago. Uh, last week, if you were here during the announcements, they were talking about a link social that's on Saturday night. And apparently the demographic for that is people who are so old that they think it's uh, going out on Saturday night with Tim McBride is a good thing to do. <laughs> I'm that old. I've done that for years. And I'm planning to go bowling uh, with Tim, I suppose. He's going on Saturday night. As long as the, the surface of the bowling alley isn't damaged by our walking frames, I think we'll have a good night. So uh, we've been around for a while. But uh, been away and come back and, and here we are. In my day job, I work at Morling College, and what I do there is I teach people about what God is doing in the world and where they fit into it. Uh, and we have a great time. I learn heaps. Uh, many of the students maintain consciousness, but uh, I'm learning, and that's really what it's all about. So uh, if you've been following along with this sermon, actually I'm doing Acts in the second half of the year. Uh, we're doing the New Testament Acts, that part, and the epistles. And so Tim and I and some others are 
doing that and you're welcome to join in with us uh, to continue on learning about Acts. So tonight I want to ask you, what, what shape is your life? If I, if I asked you to draw your life, what would you draw if you had to put it into a picture for however long your life has been? What sort of a picture would you draw? A guy called Bruce Feller, he, he did that. He asked hundreds, in fact thousands of people to draw their life and he talked to them about what they drew. Now, people drew all sorts of things. Uh, people drew objects, they drew houses, they drew teacups, they drew boomerangs. Other people were more abstract, they had squiggly lines, they had wavy lines, they had circular lines. Nobody drew a straight line, not one person. But as he was talking to people, it became obvious that people thought their life should have been a straight line. They thought somewhere in the back of their mind that that's what life was meant to be like. That it would start with birth and you'd go to school and there'd be a nice straight line to a career and then marriage and then children and, and, what, and after that, who knows. But the, people sort of had this idea that life was supposed to be a nice, straight, predictable line. But 6,000 people drew pictures for Bruce and not one person drew that. There are all sorts of other things. But nobody had that linear life, although so many people thought they should have. They just didn't. And the book of Acts is not a straight line at all. It's not a straight line either. There are all sorts of interruptions. There are earthquakes and there are shipwrecks. Uh, there are plot twists where persecutors become pioneers and where people who are outside come inside. There are all sorts of ups and downs in the book of Acts. It's not a straight line either. It's not linear. What is Acts? Why does it exist? It's not just a history lesson, although part of it is a history lesson. I think it's written for a couple of reasons. If you go right back to the beginning of Acts, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Luke, when he's uh, introducing the book, says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so what that's telling us is that Acts is a record of what Jesus continued to do and to teach just through his apostles. And then a couple of verses later on, uh, Jesus is talking to his apostles and saying that they are going to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. So that's what Acts is about. It's about what Jesus be continued to do and teach through his disciples, and what that was, the gospel going out, them being witnesses, crossing geographical barriers and crossing cultural barriers. So that's what the big picture of Acts is about. Now, why, why do we have this section of Acts? In this section of Acts, the last third of the book, from Acts chapter 19, when Paul decides to go to, to Rome, to Jerusalem, and then to Rome, it, it takes him nine chapters to get there. So that's about one third of the book. That's a pretty big section of the book, is devoted to Paul's journey, which is not in a straight line either. We know he wanted to go to Rome, which is over here, but he actually went to Jerusalem first, which is all the way over there, and then all the way back around to Rome. So another diversion. So this part is describing how Paul got to Jer Jerusalem and then to Rome. And there's three different parts of it that we'll look at tonight. Uh, we read the first part just then, his journey to Jerusalem. Then there's a bit of a discussion with James in Jerusalem. And then there's a riot, as there is quite often in the book of Acts. So the bit that was just read out to us talks about a stage in Paul's journey. Uh, last week, if you were here, he was addressing the elders who'd come down from Ephesus. And now he's continuing to work his way across what we would call the, 
the top right-hand corner of the Mediterranean uh, through Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and down to Israel. That's where he's going. That's that part of the world. And I wonder if you noticed the thing that stood out to me is that although Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem, nobody thinks that's a good idea. Nobody thinks that's a good idea. He's the only person who wants to do that. In his mind, that's what he has to do. That's what God has told him to do. Everybody else does their best to talk him out of it along the way. Did you notice that as, it goes, as it's being read out to you? Uh, verse 4, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 11, he's in another town now. Coming over to us, Agabus, the prophet, took Paul's belt and said, this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. You're going to be tied up. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul knows that that's what God wants him to do. And yet everybody else thinks that's a stupid idea. And they do their very best. They urge him, they plead, they, they warn him about what's going to happen. And they do it through the Spirit. They do it through prophecy. They plague, they plead. But he's determined. So what's going on there? That's the thing that occurred to me when I read this. You've got one person who's convinced that God wants him to go. That's Paul. And a whole bunch of other people saying, no, don't do that. So I guess there are a few options. A few, a few different options. Doesn't the word somehow in the words here, does that mean a different thing in a different place? Not really. They're pretty much the same words. Uh, second option that somebody heard wrong, uh, well, that doesn't seem to indicate that in here. It's not like a whole bunch that everybody else was somehow wrong. It doesn't say that anywhere. Uh, is it that God doesn't know what to do and the Spirit's just kind of chucking out prophecies left, right and centre, hoping that eventually someone will put it? No, that doesn't. That wouldn't make sense. We'd have so many other problems if that was the case. What I think is going on here is that the Spirit is revealing what's going to happen and everybody has access to that, but they look at it through different lenses, if you like, through different perspectives. So Paul knows that it's God's will for him to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And he's been convicted of that since chapter 19. He's been determined in that. God is revealing that to other people as well and I think they're looking at it through the lens of friendship and concern for Paul. So the same event is go, everybody knows is going to happen. Agabus's prophecy doesn't say don't go. It just says this is what will happen when you go. So people know this is going to happen, but they interpret it in different ways. They look at it through different lenses, if you like. I think that's what's going on here. It's a bit like, you know, if you have to go to the doctor and they send you off for a test and you get an X-ray or a blood test or whatever, you have to go to a different person and line up a different appointment and then you get the results and you have to take them back to you. It's a hassle, isn't it? Well, sometimes I open them before taking them back. Because it's my test, mate. It's my x-ray. I'm just going to have a read. So sometimes I do that. I'm not supposed to. But occasionally it has been helpful to know what's going on with your own body. That's a hassle to do that, isn't it? But we do that because each of those people, the, the surgeon and, and the radiologist, they're very specialised in what they do. And sometimes knowing what is happening or seeing what is there, which is what the radiologist does, is different to knowing what to do about it, which is what the surgeon does. They're different things, they're important things, but each person is specialised. And I think that a little bit like that is what's happening here. That people like Agabus, who have the gift of prophecy, 
God has revealed to them what's happened, but then people need to weigh up what to do about that. Now that makes sense of other parts of the Bible as well. And In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about distinguishing the spirits, whatever that might mean. Come to Bible college and find out. He talks about weighing up prophecy as well. And so that's what I think is happening here. The same event is being revealed to a whole bunch of different people and they're responding to it differently. Paul looking through the lens of obedience, other people looking through the lens of friendship and concern. So what Jesus is doing and saying here is that following him needs discernment. It's not just a straight line. Commands don't come down from heaven in giving you instructions for the day. Even if you know what's going to happen, even if you have the gift of prophecy, you still have to think. You still have to discern what's happening and what to do about it. That's what I think is going on here. Sometimes the same event can be interpreted in different ways. One person I know, they announced they were going to be a missionary. Uh, One of their relatives said, oh, oh, well, at least you're not a drug addict or a prostitute. Okay, so drug addict, prostitute, missionary, drug dealer. Is that like legit? Is that missionary intermediate step between... Oh, arms dealer, that's that's great, that's a job. I mean, you can... People look at it from different directions. The, the, the young person, they're excited about what God's going to do. The parent is worried about what God's going to do. And that's far from an isolated case. That sort of thing happens over and over and over again. Even people who are wise, even people who are godly, they look at things differently and they come to different conclusions. That matters when you're doing ministry together. That matters when you're serving together. That matters when you're part of a church. That people who are wise, who are filled with the Spirit, who are all, well, that's all of the people here in this story... But they have different ideas. They have different thoughts about what to do next. So you notice what happens uh, in verse 14. When he wouldn't be persuaded, what they did was they quit. (laughs) They told Paul to go and take a hike. Uh, They fired off a few furious tweets and then they found another apostle to follow. No, that's not what happened at all. Uh, When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So they actually went with him knowing what was going to happen and walking into what was going to become a very difficult situation, they decided to follow their leader, the apostle. It's not very Australian, is it, actually, to do that? To just go along with what your leader says. But that's what happened here. The person who had the discernment, the person who had the conviction, others followed. And there might be times in this church too where Ange says or Matt says or Robin says or Billy says or the leader of your ministry says, look, I prayed about this, we need to do that. You might disagree with them. That doesn't mean that you're spiritual and they're not or they're spiritual and you're not. It doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes we just have to say, okay, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Uh, That's what people there did. That's what we do. And that's what following Jesus means. It means putting aside your own preferences and being willing to put yourself even sometimes at risk. Uh, We've had conversations like this one where they were pleading with Paul with all sorts of different people. In the the country we used to live, uh, becoming a Christian following Jesus was not a simple or straightforward affair. In some ways, people didn't really care what you did in your own home. But your family cared very much and they were very interested and very concerned. So we would sit with people and talk about the cost of following Jesus and people would do that anyway. 
You know, our friends, they, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes, people were beaten, they were stabbed. One guy turned up at our door early in the morning and uh, he had this hot, this gash and blood all over his shirt and he said, my, my neighbours don't like me following Jesus so they thought they'd you know, stab me to get it out of me or convince me not to. I had it stitched up but I can't go to work like this. Can I borrow a shirt? Oh, okay, sure, yeah. Yeah, you can't go to work like that, not unless you work in an abattoir. So, yeah, please, take a shirt. (laughs) Take a shirt. We have multiple things like that happen. Following Jesus, giving your life to Jesus, is not an abstract metaphor for many people. It's a concrete reality, and so it requires discernment and it requires determination. The Lord's will be done. Now, there's a couple of other parts to this story that happen. Paul goes up to Jerusalem in the next part. I'll summarise it for you. He goes up to Jerusalem. One of the leaders there is named James. James says, welcome to Jerusalem. By the way, there's a bit of a problem. See, people here, believers here, they're extremely concerned about the Old Testament law, about their culture. Now, they've heard that you, Paul, teach against that and they're kind of worried about that. Actually, they're quite worried and quite angry. So what are we going to do? We don't want to start a fight. So what what to do, Paul? James advises him. There's a couple of other guys here. They're they're going through a Jewish purification ritual. So you join them. You pay their expenses. They're shaving their heads. You shave your head. And that'll show everybody that you're actually still a good Jewish boy. Even though you believe in Jesus, you're still okay. So that's James's advice. Is it good advice? to just fit in with what people want. These are brothers and sisters of Paul in Christ and they've got their own culture they're dragging in with them to the faith. Is it a good idea to go along with them or not? It doesn't really answer that question in Acts, but I think if we sort of broaden our gaze a little bit, think again of Corinthians where Paul talks about to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews, to those not under the law I became like one not under the law to win those not under the law. I became all things to all people. And this is an example, I think, of that in practice. That if it helps the Jewish brothers and sisters to understand the gospel and to be okay, if it helps for me to shave my head, then I'll shave my head. It's just hair. It'll come back again eventually, probably, one day. So, yeah, I'll do that. So that's what he does. He's willing to do that. He's in Romans, it talks about as far as possible, as if it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If eating meat causes your brother or sister to stumble, become a vegetarian. These are the words of Paul, and these are the actions of Paul here in Acts, where he does what he's talking about. So what is Jesus doing and saying here? How is the gospel crossing cultural barriers? Well, we get the feeling that, you know, with difficulty is the answer that these people have responded to Christ, but they're, they're kind of stuck in their old way of thinking. Their old culture is coming along with them. They're still really excited about that and really passionate about it. We'll see how passionate in a minute. And we've just got to deal with that. Paul has to adjust to that. He has to cope with that. If he has to become a vegetarian, become a vegetarian. If he has to shave his head, he'll shave his head. It doesn't matter. What matters is that He does what he can to get along with his brothers and sisters in Christ. How does that apply to us? 
How does that apply to our church? I was checking the census this week, sort of idly flicking through it, as you do when you're bored. I found that about one-third of the population of Nawi, this local area, is, is Chinese. So what, would it, what could I do that would make it easier for them to hear the gospel? What do I have to adjust about my life to make that easier? And for those of them who, who are my brothers and sisters, how can I get along better with them? Or what if scores of them started to turn up here? How could we adjust what we're doing to make it easier for other people to hear the gospel and to live it out in their lives? I don't think I'll have to become a vegetarian, but I don't care really. I don't think I'll have to shave my head, but I think it would get really cold actually. So I'd probably have to invest in some beanies. But if that's what it takes, then apparently that's what we do. So in this middle section here, Paul is trying to work out how to get on with his brothers and sisters and he ends up shaving his head and going through the purification ritual. So following Jesus, doing mission requires sacrificing what you want and putting other people first. That's a bit of kind of countercultural thing, isn't it? I mean, it's all about us, it's all about me, it's all about our wants, our desires. It is out there, but in here, everything's different. In here, it's not about me, it's about them. It's here about, in here, it's not about doing things my way, the way I've done it for X number of years. It's about what will make it easier for other people to hear the gospel and to follow Jesus. So that's the second section. In the third section, despite all that effort... There's a riot. So Paul is in Jerusalem. He's tried to live at peace with those Jews who become Christians. He's done what he can to get on with them. But obviously there are many people who who aren't Christians, Jewish people who aren't Christians there in Jerusalem. And they find out that Paul is there. Uh, Let me read to you a little bit of that last section from verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions. It goes on. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. So there's basically a riot. And these people aren't Christians, they're Jewish people. And you can see how zealous they are for the law. Because one of the laws was that you couldn't bring foreigners into the temple. That was a law punishable by death. So people were pretty serious about that rule. And they just assumed that Paul had done that. They'd seen him around the city with some Greeks. And so they just kind of leapt to the conclusion that Paul had brought them into the temple. There's no basis for that. It's not true. But that didn't worry them. (laughs) That doesn't worry people the truth. They just assumed that it had happened. And so a riot started. People are running from everywhere. People are shouting one thing or another. They begin to to pull Paul apart to try to kill him right there on the spot. They shut the temple gates to keep Paul inside and any rescuers outside. And then they proceed to try and kill him. So the Romans get wind of it and they come, they rescue him. Now one of the things that uh, we, I teach people, so I teach at Morling College and I also teach outside the college because not quite everything about mission fits into a Bible college. Uh, one of the subjects that we teach outside the college is about crowds. 
So we teach people who are soon to go overseas to think about what crowds are like. Uh, it's more important than you think. So where we used to live, it was interesting at times. Every now and again, something had happened and people would get angry. So what do you do when you're angry in the Middle East? You trash something. They trashed the local Maccas, which was just opposite us and down the street a bit. So sometimes we'd wake up in the morning or we'd be going about our business in the afternoon and you hear the sound of breaking glass and shouting in the distance and you think, oh, Maccas has gone again. Oh, good for the glaziers, but nobody else. Uh, no happy meals today, kids. So we'll stay home. Just stay home, right? Just stay out of the way. They're not angry with us. They're not coming this way. They'll, they'll trash Maccas. They'll go home. But uh, we'll just stay out of the way. They'll be all right. So some crowds you can avoid. Some crowds you can't avoid. Right, so a friend of ours, she's driving the kids home from school. She took a wrong turn. She ended up in no man's land between the, the riot police and a whole bunch of people throwing rocks and bricks and whatever they could lay their hands on the riot police firing back. And she came out of a, a blind alley, so to speak, right in the middle of the, in no man's land. And everybody went, oh, hang on. Sorry, stop, 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 stop. Okay, okay. Right, three you go, madam. Three you go, three you go, everybody. See you later. Right, now back to it, fellas. And they just went and cracked on with a riot back at, at business as normal. So some crowds are polite. They might be angry, but at least they're organised and polite. Uh, this is absolutely the worst type of crowd. It's the worst type of crowd because they're confused. They don't know why they're there. They're all angry about something. Somebody's got to suffer for something. But who and why? Nobody knows. There's nobody in charge. This is, an, this is a nightmare, this type of crowd. And we've... We've ended up in a couple of these from time to time. I'll tell you about that another day. This is the worst type of crowd of all. They've got no direction other than somebody must, something must, I don't know what, but yeah, I'm really angry about something, so find me somebody to trash or find me somebody to tear apart. They have no direction whatsoever. So what's Jesus doing and teaching here? I think he's doing and teaching. When you look at the series of events... That no matter how hard you try, no matter whether you become a vegetarian and shave your head and do whatever you can, some people are still going to get angry. Uh, they, these people, there's no basis for their complaint. They're not worried about the truth. They're just enjoying being upset on a pleasant afternoon and you know, having a bit of a smashing festival. So that, that happens. People get the wrong end of the stick. People don't pay attention to what you say or they deliberately miss distorted and they create all sorts of things and all of a sudden all everybody's running and they're angry and sometimes there's nothing you can do about that sometimes there's nothing you can do about that so mission sometimes it involves conflict and it involves suffering and that's it you can't you can't escape it because it finds you because people don't pay attention because people don't care about the truth because people are about angry, angry about all sorts of things and you just happen to be there that's the way mission is. That's the way following Jesus is. Sometimes you've just got to be prepared to cop it and to suffer. Just as a sidebar here, uh, on the subject of doxing, which is something I learned about during the week, but on the interweb apparently, doxing, what that is is where a bunch of self-righteous keyboard warriors find out somebody they think has done something wrong and then they determine, decide on their own basis their own bat to out that person to destroy that person's reputation and it, and mob doesn't need to be real anymore it happens on the internet 
And this happened to a kid in Canberra a couple of weeks ago. She, she looks like somebody who was at a protest about something. A whole bunch of people saw that picture. They searched for her. They found this other person in Canberra. They found her name. They found her address. They found a school. They found a phone number. And they turned her life into an absolute living hell. It's terrible for her. She can't go to school anymore. She's terrified to go outside. So don't form a mob on the internet either. I, I don't know whether anybody's likely to get into that sort of thing here, but don't appoint yourself as the guardian of whatever and do your own internet investigation and out people. Don't be part of a, a real mob or a virtual mob. You're not doing anybody any favours. Now, Paul is rescued at the end by the Romans. The last people you think who are going to help. Here's another plot twist. The Romans, the pagans, the idolaters, they're the ones who ride in to save him. They hear there's a disturbance. They don't like that sort of thing. They're there to ensure public order, which means, you know, Romans on top, everybody else on bottom. That's what they're there for. So they form a squad, they charge down there, they clear the way, and they rescue Paul. So Paul is rescued by the people you're least likely to. He's set upon by his own fellow religionists, the Jews, and he's rescued by the pagans. Who knows? Life's not a straight line. Sometimes there are plot twists. And we've seen heaps of things like this as well. Uh, you know, like I said before, being a Christian was an interesting proposition. One of our local friends, he, could, he was an evangelist. He had that gift. And he actually had a business card made up with the you know, his name and number and evangelist on it, which he'd give out to people. He's pretty brave. And, of course, people would get that and they'd ring him up and, or other things as well. And, and he, he just got used to these people ringing up. You know, so he, we developed a sort of taxonomy, a system for abusive phone calls. So you get the people who ring up and they're swearing on the phone, I'm going to rip your arms and legs off and beat you over the head with the soggy ends and... You, all these biologically impossible insults. And so what he'd do for them was he'd put his phone on speaker and just put it on the desk and just continue working away or doing housework or whatever while they're, they're foaming at the mouth over the phone and, and let them wind down. And one day somebody ran out of breath and they, you know, they were swearing and screaming and then they said, oh, you're still there? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm still here. Ah, back to swearing and screaming again. Okay, so... Those people, they're harmless. You don't have to worry about those people. They just want to shout at somebody, okay, shout at, shout at us over the phone. Other people are a bit more serious. So when somebody rings up, somebody rang up once and said, oh, this is where you live, these are your children's names, this is the school they go to, this is the car you drive, this is the number plate, and this is the time you drop them off. Stop what you're doing. Goodbye, have a nice day. It's like, wow, that's really serious. You know, the people who are calm are actually the dangerous ones. One time he went out, to his letterbox, and there was a bullet in there. Not a tiny little, you know, tiddlywinks 22, but a great big thing from a 50 caliber machine gun. And, and we, he rang me up and said, what, do, what are we going to do about this? I don't know. He said, do you want to ring the police? Do you want the police to get involved? The police are kind of slightly helpful sometimes. Uh, you know, it depends on the day, depends on the hour, depends on the temperature outside, whether they're going to come and help. So you just don't know... Anyway, he rang them up. Within minutes, there were three police cars, well-staffed. They were knocking on doors. They were looking at the bullet and, you know, doing NCIS stuff all over it. And the guy, the guy in charge, who was a major, which is pretty big, you know, it's a pretty big deal for him to get out from his behind, behind his desk, he said, uh, he said to our friend, look, I don't agree with what you're doing. I think you're wrong. 
And I want to convince you that you're wrong, that Islam is the true path and that you've wandered from that. I want to convince you of that. But in order for me to convince you, you actually have to be able to convince me as well. It goes both ways, this thing. So, so I want to protect your right to be wrong. And if anything ever happens to you again, here's my mobile number. Just call me and we'll sort it out because I, I believe you're wrong, but you have a right to be wrong and I want to protect you. It's like, oh, okay. All of a sudden we got the, phone, the private phone number of one of the majors in the police. It's fantastic. It's not what we expected. Who'd have thought that? <laughs> Who'd have thought that? But that's what happens. Mission is not in a straight line and sometimes the people you think aren't on your side are actually the people who come to your rescue and that's what happens here with the Apostle Paul. It's the Romans who save him from the crowd. So what's Jesus doing and teaching in this part of the book of Acts? Following Jesus requires discernment and some level of determination, being willing to put yourself at risk, being willing to weigh up the advice of different people and make a decision. It involves putting other people first, whether it's head shaving or vegetarian or whatever. Mission requires sacrifice at many levels. And mission involves suffering. Sometimes you just can't get away from it. Sometimes it comes to you and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't know what shape you draw for your line or whether you'd actually have one of the mythical, fabled, straight line, nice, dependable, predictable lives. If you've got one of those, then God bless you, you are literally one in a thousand. But most of us haven't got a life like that. And being a disciple isn't like that either. Following Jesus doesn't go in a straight line. But it does go with the power of the Spirit uh, to discern, to be determined, to suffer and maybe even to sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for arranging this bit of Paul's life story to be written down for us. We can see what it was like for him to follow you. And we pray that you would send us out in the power of that same spirit to discern, to be determined, uh, to suffer and even to sacrifice for you. Amen.